Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dave Clay. Creeper, stalker, <laughs> what's still saying, a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. Uh, not really. Nobody likes to be creeped on. <laughs> Nobody likes to be stalked. Now there's certainly situations that possibly warrant that degree of suspicion. I would presume that's where that comes from. Maybe it's a bit of control and possession, possessiveness. Uh, Some justifiably so, again, kind of go along the lines of cheating in relationships. Uh, Both sides of that, not only the offended, but the offender, oddly enough. The offender is quick to accuse the offended as soon as the offended that does discover the offender's behaviors. I don't think it's just kind of covering it all up. I think there's a bit of projection and a bit of reaction formation that goes along with that. But the notion of it is, is that in that kind of a circumstance, then typically the one that has been offended, especially if you also believe the old saying, haven't done it once, they're going to likely do it again. Uh, the offended wants to know. <laughs> they want to know where you are. They want you on whatever that Apple app is that could track people. The GPS satellite system, they want to peruse your phone. They want to know what you're doing on social media. Uh, They want to take and put filters on your uh, smartphone, any equipment, uh, computers, tablets, etc., etc., that might otherwise supply a, a chance, an opportunity to offend again. And they want to make sure that as much as you might tell them, if you would be the offender, that you will never do it again. They're a little too wise to know that. Maybe it's the old saying, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you. And sometimes it takes three or four times before somebody would get to that point, advanced point of not only hypervigilance, but a bit of paranoia. And then there are those that the article from Psychology Today, Relationships, Trust, under the section of Relationships, Trust, article entitled, Should You Cyber Track Your Partner? July, August, 2023, Psychology Today. The desire to know what a partner is up to all the time can lead to cyber-stalking behaviors that erode erode trust and threaten relationships. (laughs) You wish they were... Erudite by Martin Graff, PhD. Imagine this situation. A man goes to sleep and leaves his phone by the bed. While he slumbers, his partner, who knows his passcode or perhaps has face or fingerprint access, opens it and without his permission starts checking his messages. Is this normal? Is it acceptable? Does it depend on the partner's motive? And appropriate or not, what in the partner's personality drives them to do it? These were some of the questions addressed in a recent study on electronic tracking in relationships. It's a matter of some debate whether checking up on an intimate partner's activity, using phone searches, location tracking, or other techniques should be considered a form of stalking. 
If it doesn't escalate to harassment or menacing, some may consider such monitoring to be no problem, while others may see it as profoundly violating. Intimate partner monitoring can be driven by a range of motivations depending on the type of connection the couple shares. Some people who feel insecure about a relationship may engage in online tracking to try to confirm a long-term partner's continuing commitment. While a short-term partner may check someone's devices to acquire background information about them, such as history of sexual promiscuity. It is also possible, though, that someone's willingness to monitor an intimate partner online may be related to their personality, specifically being high in one or more of the traits known as the dark tetrad, which includes narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, psychopathy and sadism. The new research led by Avita March, a psychologist at Federation University in Ballarat, Australia, specifically explored this possibility and indeed found a connection between the traits of someone willing, someone's willingness to stalk online. The researchers set out to investigate both the methods individuals used in the tracking, monitoring, and cyberstalking of intimate partners to obtain otherwise hidden information and the personal drivers of the behavior. They investigated methods used in both short and long-term relationships whether the mating goals involved acquiring or retaining a mate, and the presence of dark tetrad traits. Intimate partner tracking was measured with a 21-item survey in which participants responded to such statements as, I have used or considered using phone apps to track my partner's activities. The majority of my time spent on social networking sites is looking at my partner's pages and to a certain extent, my partner should expect that I would log into their online accounts. Subjects were asked whether they would engage in each behavior or not in four different contexts. Within a long-term relationship, within a short-term relationship, with the goal of acquiring a partner, and with the goal of retaining a mate. The team classified intimate partner online tracking into three different types before analyzing their data. Passive, such as checking the online status of a partner. Invasive, such as checking on a partner's email, emails, texts, or call history. And duplicitous, such as using the location settings on a partner's phone to see where they've been. Who's more likely to track? The researchers found that men and women both reported being more likely to passively track a partner than to use invasive or duplicitous methods. This is understandable when we consider that the benefits of duplicitous tracking are often superseded by the risk, and that involves more effort than other techniques. Behavior that could be considered stalking is more typically imagined to be a male pursuit, but the team's findings suggest the reality is somewhat different, at least when it comes to online techniques. The research team found that overall, women were more likely to engage in intimate partner tracking than men using both passive and invasive techniques. 
Women also were more likely than men to engage in invasive tracking, both to retain a long-term partner and to secure a short-term one. The researchers suggest that this gender difference could be explained in evolutionary terms. Since mistakes made in partner choice are potentially costlier for women who invest more in parenting compared to men, cyber tracking may be a relatively low-risk way to help them avoid selecting the wrong mate. The team did note that it was somewhat unexpected that women reported using invasive tracking to secure short-term partners when those techniques clearly depend on having a greater knowledge of the target than one would expect to be available in short-term relationship. For example, having access to their partner's online accounts. The stalking personality. This research confirmed that higher levels of Machiavellianism, narcissism, psychopathy, and sadism were in fact linked to higher levels of intimate partner tracking. However, when the researchers looked at each type of tracking separately, they found only psychopathy to be related to all three techniques, passive, invasive, and duplicitous. This is not especially surprising as psychopathy involves little concern about potentially hurting others. There's no reason any form of partner tracking behavior should give pause to those who are high in this trait. The presence of narcissism, Machiavellianism, and sadism, on the other hand, did not track with invasive techniques, and Machiavellianism was not linked to duplicitous methods. Anyone thinking about engaging in cyber tracking should stop and think about whether their anxiety about a partner's commitment is actually based on that partner's behavior or is instead driven by their own insecurity, relationship history, or indeed their personality-driven tendencies, which are admittedly not always easy to recognize. Men, in particular, may want to consider the evolutionary explanation proposed by the researchers with a clear understanding of why women may be more concerned that a male partner will remain committed, men might be more open and honest in the relationships and resist any instinct to keep secrets or hide aspects of their everyday lives from their partners. Relationships are built on trust and often broken by its absence. So even if, as this research suggests, one cyber tracking is not entirely driven by distrust, it sends a clear and concerning signal to a partner that it is. So the article, should you cyber track your partner, the desire to know what a partner is up to all the time can lead to cyber stalking behaviors that arrayed, arrayed, erode, I can't get that, erode, arrayed, erode, trust and threaten relationships by Martin Graff, PhD. And Martin Graff is a senior lecturer and the head of research in psychology at the University of South Wales. Evolution may explain why women are more likely to cyber attack. The bullet point. All I know is that psychopathy is hard when it comes to therapy. Makes therapy difficult, if not entirely impossible. There does seem to be a need for a conscience. And to the extent that 
that would cross all dimensions when it comes to the cyberstalking, as well as possibly establish a trajectory as well as, as well as valence, a motivation. That is really not a good one from the very inception. It is most likely of all the things the article addresses, that trait that might be more personality-driven, less experience-driven. We could presume that personality might be more genetically encoded. Not sure entirely. There's a psychosocial dimension to personality, or at least the refinement of it. But I'm probably inclined, as I believe still most of the industry is, to believe that personality disorders more than even any of the other disorders that anyone doing what I do for a living, the psychological counseling, would end up over the course of a lifetime treating would be more tied to genetics and with that more resistant to modification and change. It's encoded genetically. Still doesn't mean you can't modify it. Still doesn't mean you can't make alterations or changes. It's just very difficult to sustain because the base, so to speak, the point of origin is already sort of crystallized before you even get experience then to back that up psychosocially, environmentally, culturally. And an interesting thought is that as a product of a male and female, or what we would continue to consider to be male and female for the sake of reproduction, those genetics that you then would be given are typically reinforced psychosocially because of the manifestation of the genetic material and social dimension and still the concept somewhat of a nuclear family and with that then whether that is supportive of pro-social or anti-social psychopathy or psychopathic sort of behaviors or attitudes would seem to suggest supply as much then one would encourage more of that social connections and the therein hopeful conscience that you would have, whether you believe that's genetically encoded or socially learned, as much as again sort of discounting or moving further away from if you believe that everybody has the potential for a good conscience, bad seed, born a bad seed or not, you're going to have more difficulty sustaining it if the genetics are against you and then if the psychosocial environment would otherwise be turned also therein in that same direction. Which would then suggest that, as far as the article is concerned, those are the ones that are most likely to cheat and probably are the ones that you might want to keep your eye on more. The others are just errors, mistakes. Maybe they're innocent, maybe they're not. Maybe they're again in that same genetic way, evolutionarily inclined toward men committing versus women. But the article did not seem to suggest there was so much then the prevalence of a gender bias beyond that. But if you found yourself in a relationship or maybe out of some situational 
circumstantial, sort of determinant. Somebody has betrayed your trust. Maybe they just got in a bad way. Maybe they got involved in some addictive behavior, something that precluded them as would be living up to the highest measure of what they identify conscience-wise, consciously as conscience-wise, virtue and character, then you might look at them and say, well, that'll hurt a lot. I better pay attention. It could happen again. If it happens a second time, you may say, are you sure this is not a personality trait? Are you sure this is not psychopathy? Now, I don't know if Machiavellianism is necessarily a good trait to have or isn't genetically encoded. I'm not saying in that same sort of a way that you would want that as a partner But I do believe, as much as these might be, then the innocent mistake, maybe along the passive line, just for the sake of control, invasive even, for the sake of control. When you get to duplicitous, that's a lot of lying and cheating that's going on in therein would seem to suggest either a very weak conscience, very weak virtue, moral kind of fabric, expressed consciously. But that's also a problem because those individuals who really are psychopathic, they're not about just control or even the sadistic element that the article brings out as with control. They're, or even the control that comes out of, again, being accidentally, so to speak, caught up in a circumstance where somebody's lied to you, stolen from you, And really, they didn't mean to or they meant to in the moment that they're in because of the pressures. They went ahead and did it, but they regret it greatly. Their conscience would bother them. They would feel guilty. They would feel like they've done you wrong. When we're talking about cheating, and that's usually what I'll see in terms of couples sort of counseling, or at least a good measure when it comes to these type of things that we're discussing in the podcast today, guilt is a good thing. The guilty party, the offender, if they genuinely regret, have remorse, we can do something with that. If they otherwise feel badly, they can show some empathy, even if it's after the fact. They, where was it when you did it? You know, you could get past that if they genuinely, authentically demonstrate that. Empathy and perspective taking after the fact. You can work with that. But the real, I think, danger in psychopathy is that the psychopath, absent a conscience, will tell you anything you want to hear and show no signs of lying because there's no guilt. There's no conscience. There's no empathy. There's no perspective taking. And with that, you can't, there's really nothing to grab a hold of. You can't really work with that except in some sort of rules or legislated sort of dimension rules-driven or legislated dimension. Hence, somebody then is going to have to resort to control. The same kind of uh, personality trait probably manifests itself in, in not only offending in the way of marital relationships or extramarital affairs, covenant that promise not to, unless you have, of course, an open relationship, and I suppose in that light, then maybe they're really not lying to you. Maybe it's just agreed upon. I don't want to be dismissive of that. But when it comes to sexual offense, and particularly when it comes to offenders, perpetrators and offenders, that's why they end up on a sexual offender's 
roster in most states. Because not only they do it once, but they lack empathy for the victim. Those that are offended, they lack perspective. There's something psychologically wrong. Is it personality? Maybe. Maybe it's just psychopathy. There is this thing called post-traumatic stress disorder. Having had that happen to someone at a critical developmental kind of point in their life, stage in their life, prior to the real formation of identity and personality, disassociation being part of that, creating its own set of problems. I do believe some individuals offend out of a motive such as that that seems to suggest that the disassociation or the compartmentalization preempt them in the moment that they would be either triggered and with that in a position to offend or having motive to take it one step forward to a point of offending or hurting someone else, they have a very difficult time stopping themselves. Hence, they end up on an offenders list. Hence, they have to report where they live. Hence, they have to disclose to the proper authorities if they should be in a profession, a vocation, that puts them in close proximity to vulnerable peoples, whether it's children or adults, that they would have readily available access to offend, and those individuals presumptively would not have likewise some sort of an awareness, even should there be some soft signs of such as grooming, as we call it, that takes place, they really can't see it. Unfortunately, a lot of those individuals that would not see it, they themselves have been victimized, offended at likewise, very similar sort of developmental stage. And when they compartmentalize, when they go into a dissociative sort of state or status, they check out and render their conscience lost. They're not connecting feelings to thoughts in a way that is prohibitive of them having an awareness and insight. And in that, they subject themselves at times to undue risk because they just, the way the defense mechanism works, denial as the premise, they just don't see it coming. But not to stray too far from the article and then the original intent of the podcast, If you're in a relationship with someone who really has no conscience, someone who is exhibiting psychopathy, however they've acquired it, someone who has been caught in multiple affairs, all at the same time possibly even, and does not seem to register or example any sort of guilt or remorse in a genuine sort of way, which would then have some authentic emotional sort of reaction to it, you might want to look at that in that way of, well, if you're going to stay with them, you're probably going to have to resort to cyber attack or track, excuse me, not attack, cyber track. You may want to look at them as that type of individual who you may have to pay that kind of attention to. You may have to look at them as that type of person that you're going to have to monitor, but that doesn't make you a cyber tracker or a stalker. They, however, in their, as I mentioned at the very onset of the podcast, they in their reaction formation, though, 
And how close is that to psychopathy when they still might have a bit of motive? Psychopathy is very selfish. I think humans in general are very selfish creatures. Most of our relationships are transactional or built on do this for me and I'll do this for you, reciprocity. Most people are going to probably see somewhere along the line, if you do too much of that, it's a deal breaker. But when you get into stalking and you get into that level of control, that's a bunch of problem too. But we can sort that out a bit better as long as a person has a conscience. We can talk it through. We can discuss it. We can generate inside awareness. We can generate empathy. We can generate perspective taking. We can refine those skills. We can fortify those. We can monitor until we feel confident that we don't need to monitor. It's sort of like someone with any addiction on the front end of it. It takes a lot of that regulating externally. External location or locus of control versus an internal. But if they've got at least the capacity still to manage it from within as with conscience as with a recognition of what's right or what's wrong virtue and character then you could do something with that I think the article is just capturing the fact that just because someone might do some cyber tracking just because someone might have some sort of control issues however they've gotten there maybe some jealousy issues however they've gotten there, can still be redeemable or workable in terms of the relationship because even on the basis of reciprocity, maybe it's not going to be built on this unconditional love or this sort of giving without any sort of conditions that many people would want to have. I think even that type of love, you have to establish first a foundation to set it upon. But it's all workable. The one you can't, though is unfortunately people do sometimes find themselves in it the one where there's no conscience I don't think you could construct conscience especially after identity has been established after a certain age it's all legislated after a certain age it's all somebody watching and monitoring Uh, that's making you a prison guard (laughs) that's putting you in the position of being an officer a compliance officer a police officer some sort of law enforcement dimension and that usually is exhaustive and most people really that's not what they aspire to in relationships but should you have any of the lesser of that where you still have hope that there's conscience and guilt and shame even and bad feelings for having done such a thing, relationship counseling works. You may end up going through some phases of cyber tracking, even a bit of stalking, but it's not maybe as pathological. And if it's not all about dominance and control, even sadism, which does tend to once more kind of skew it toward the psychopathy side of it. Those are probably good warning signs that you should be cautious in any venture to make correction or to rectify the situation. And the person you're seeing, as much the psychological counselor, should enter into that with all hope and optimism. But somewhere along the line, those points are going to come out if you are diligent and follow through and remain committed. And the truth of the matter as a final thought for today is that if one is psychopathic, 
If one is more into control, if one is more the stalker type, even the offender type, the abuser type, they're probably not going to hang in there and stay under that magnifying glass, or at least the accountability that goes along with the psychological counseling, the setting down with someone such as myself as a couple would, they're not going to stay with that very long, and then they'll end up bailing on the process. And that should be a sign, too. If they won't go in and talk to somebody, you might want to consider there's something behind that. And it just may be that they feel nervous and uncomfortable, but it may also be they really don't like the accountability that goes along with it. That's one of the things, though, that goes into most of that type of work that I do is this is all of those things. It's discovery, it's insight, it's awareness, it's empathy, it's perspective-taking, it's reconciliation, but it's also accountability. There needs to be accountability. Relationship trust section of psychology today, July, August of 2023. The article, should you cybertrack your partner? The desire to know what a partner is up to all the time can lead to cyberstalking behaviors that erode trust and threaten relationships by Martin Graff, PhD. It all depends. And with that, then, you may have to unpack it a bit to find out what the true vector and valence is the direction this is all going, and the motive. But it's always better sooner than later because once you get to the later portions, it's harder to get out of that. And with that, the more that you might be subject to the maladaptive, the more harm it can do. I would encourage if you believe that you want to talk this out with somebody, either individually first or bringing your significant other with you, then you can find a a lot of good providers on Psychology Today website, their directory. I would encourage you to look them up. If you want to reach out to me for anything, any question, any assistance, we live in a virtual world. As long as I'm licensed to practice in the state, I could even see you for the psychological counseling if it should come to that. But if I'm not, then I'm going to send you back to the Psychology Today directory to find someone who is licensed in your particular state. And you don't even have to leave your home. You could just do that all online. Of course, I'm still a big advocate or proponent of actual interpersonal, person-to-person, in a physical sort of way, dimension of relationship. And so uh, if you can, I do think that it enhances the experience to be able to sit down and kind of common physical dimension with somebody and read all the nonverbals and be able to kind of really tune in through the emotions that sometimes the tuning in gets a little disrupted because of the virtual platform, the limitations of that platform. But however you do it, I would encourage you to take that chance and risk and go seek some help. But should you not want to or not prepared to yet, I would want to invite you back again to our next podcast of... This is Word with Dr. Michael David Clay, Dave Clay. And in the meantime, should you want to reach me, you can call me at 304-523-9673, Word, Word, 9673, the wordhouse at frontier.com, and the wordhouse.com. Until we get a chance to meet again, (laughs) talk again, I want to wish you the best in terms of not only general wellness, but in particular mind health and wellness. 
Until then, thanks very much.